Agiostos. My name is Bill Dykstra. So today we are kind of going back to our regular programming where in the last couple episodes that we've done, we've just talked about things that are going on in the world, you know, things about just spiritual life, and we're talking about saints again today. But I would like to begin by thank you, thanking you uh, very much for all the kind of support that we had with our last episode, Scum and Refuse. That's one where I kind of maybe bore myself more than... Uh, what is customary, I guess, on this podcast. So I'd like to thank you very much for all the love and support that we received from that. And if you haven't listened to that episode, Scum of Refuse, I highly suggest that you do. Moving on. So yes, typically when we do an episode on a saint, it comes out on the saint's feast day. However, we wanted to give you a bit of a heads up. And so today's saint is Saint Euphrosyne of Polosk. Uh, and her feast day is this Saturday, so I guess this is coming out on Friday, so it's tomorrow. Tomorrow's her feast day. So Sarah and I have, we've really enjoyed getting to know St. Euphrosini, and we think you will too. So this is us saying, you know, heads up, you're going to want to pay attention to this one. Now I'm going to give St. Euphrosini's kind of biographical details, and Sarah has some thoughts at the end, um, kind of reflections on her life that she would like to give. So, let's begin. We'll begin by saying that St. Euphrosyne was born in the purple in 1104. This means that she was born into a royal house. She was the great-great-great-granddaughter of St. Vladimir, the Grand Prince of Kiev. Her birth name, or her given name in the world, was Pradslava, and she was the daughter of Prince George Veselovich. Their royal house was of the Rurik dynasty. Their family ruled the lands of Rus and eventually founded the Tsardom of Russia. This was the case until 1610. Until the ascendancy of the Romanovs, the Rurik dynasty was the preeminent reigning family amongst the Rusin people. That is, if you, you know, disregard that whole Mongol thing. Anyways, it is the Rurik dynasty that branched off into some of the best and some of the worst people of the region. Predslava, she was one of the best. However, she became such by turning away from the endowed prestige of her family. At a very young age, Predslava had an affinity for learning and for prayer. Bestowing honor on our Lord was her life's goal, and nothing was going to distract her from her mission. She refused many marriage proposals, knowing that a public royal life was not for her. At the age of 12, without the knowledge of her parents, she rejected a marriage proposal and ran away from home and joined a monastery where her aunt was the abbess. Now, at this point, I would like to quote uh, the life of St. Euphrosyne and actually speaks of how she came to the decision to leave her family. Her mind being illuminated, she said to herself, It appears that my father wishes to give me away in marriage, and if this happens, I shall not escape the cares of this world. Then she continued thus, Our ancestors who lived before us, what did they achieve? They took wives and were given away in marriage. They ruled, but they did not live forever. Their life passed away, their fame consumed like dust being more flimsy than a spider's web. 
But on the other hand, there were women who, filled with manly courage, followed in the footsteps of Christ, their bridegroom, and submitted their bodies to torment and their heads to the sword. There were others, too, who did not bow their necks to the steel, but cut away all the desires of the flesh with a spiritual sword and subjected their bodies to fasting, vigils, genuflections, and prostrations. Their memory lives on the earth, whilst their names are written in heaven, where they praise God unceasingly together with the angels. This earthly fame is but dust and ashes. It will disperse like smoke and melt away like a vapor. While she was thus reasoning in her heart, her mind became more and more drawn to the service of God. One thought persisted in her. Would not my life be better if I became a nun? I would then be under an abbess and sisters, learning how to pass the days of my life with fear of God constantly in my heart. Having resolved thus, she, covertly from her father and mother, made her way to a convent. Now we're going to hang back right here. I don't want to take away from the commentary that Sarah's going to provide later, but we need to pause after that comment because it's heavy. This is one heavy 12-year-old girl. Like That's utter badassery right there. This should be a kind of a signpost, you know, warning. This is the kind of person that you're dealing with when you're reading about the life of St. Euphrosyne. Anyways, let's continue. So, understandably, her aunt was afraid of how Predslava's father was going to react at this gesture. She was the widow of his brother, Prince Roman, and likely knew Predslava's father well. However, her little niece begged her to allow her to enter the monastery. With the expressed permission of Bishop Elias of Poltosk, Predslava was tonsured a nun and took on the name Euphrosyne. Now, she did not assume this name. She did not decide on the name haphazardly. The original St. Euphrosyne lived in Alexandria in the 5th century. She, too, left a marriage proposal and ran away from home to live a monastic life. Euphrosyne of Poltosk saw these similarities. I imagine she knew she had a friend in heaven. I don't imagine she took this decision lightly, but there was likely gained a good deal of comfort knowing that someone once took a similar path uh, to her and became holy doing so. This new Euphrosyne embraced a more humbler pace. She took on the duties of a copyist. She sat in the basement of St. Sophia Cathedral transcribing religious books into newer copies. At the time, this was a physically demanding thing to do and was exclusively done by men. It was a slow-going process with the, you know, developed artistic dimension to it. A, day, a day's work would only produce, you know, a handful of pages. However, Euphrosyne endured it. The money that she gained from copying books would go directly to the poor. Now, when it comes to a lot of saints, different stories share maybe different details about their lives. Uh, what most say is that what happens next in her life is she, re she receives an angelic visitation. The prologue of Orid states that this happened three times, and others 
tell the story as if it happened only once. At any rate, whether it happened one time or multiple times, an angel visited her in a dream and brought her to the village of Seltso, two miles outside of Potolsk. In the dream, the angel told her that at this spot, she should establish a monastic community for women. In 1128, the same bishop who allowed Euphrosyne to become a nun against the wishes of her family gave her his consent to begin her new mission. Many women joined Euphrosyne at the Savior Transfiguration Monastery. Euphrosyne shared her knowledge of book copying amongst other skills. According to the prologue of Ored, other members of her family were even inspired to join her. It states... She even attracted her sister Eudocia to the monastic life and many other maidens from the ranks of aristocracy. Her cousin Zianslava, by birth Princess Borsov, brought all of her riches, clothes, and precious stones and said, All the beauty of this world I consider vanity, and these adornments prepared for my marriage I give to the Church of the Savior, and I, myself, wish to be betrothed to him in a spiritual marriage and place my head beneath his good and easy yoke. Euphrosina also tauntured her a nun and gave her the name Eupraxia. End quote. However, something that made Euphrosina even more unique is that she founded a monastic community for men. And this is something that has happened from time to time in the West, but this is especially rare in Eastern Christianity. Now, I don't think that this is entirely an alien thing to happen in the Greco-Catholic tradition, because if you'll remember, there's this story of the Mother of God where she is shipwrecked, shipwrecked and uh, comes to Mount Athos before you know there's any domestic communities there and blesses it. And I think that could be maybe a you know, traditional um, foundation for what Euphrosina is doing in Poltosk. Moving on. So, after her women's monastery was completed in 1133, keep in mind, she was born in 1104. She's not even 30 yet. And she's the abbess, or the hegumena, of this, uh, this monastic community. So, anyways, since the women's community was established in 1133, the next building project was a church. In 1161, the Church of the Holy Savior was completed. It stands today and is considered to be emblematic of early Belarusian architecture, and we provided a link in the show notes so you can go and you can see it. It's among some other churches, but this one is kind of like, this is emblematic of their style at the time. So this is a good segue. She was considered to be a patron of the religious arts. She commissioned an exaltation cross to be made in the same year her church was completed. It had six arms and was decorated with gems, emeralds, and icons. It held great cultural significance, much like that of the churches we just talked about. It was an early example of early Belarusian craftsmanship. Within the cross itself were the relics of the true cross and the blood of the Lord particles of the Holy Sepulchre and the Sepulchre of the Mother of God, and relics of St. Stephen the Proto-Martyr, relics of Pentelion, and the blood of St. Demetrios. The cross itself, however, went missing during the Second World War. 
And on the back, get this, on the back the cross reads, May it never leave the convent. May it never be sold or given away. Should whoever disobeys and takes it away from the convent, may this holy cross never help him, either in the ongoing age or in the age to come. So I guess, if you happen to have this cross, if you're listening to this podcast and you happen to have this 800-year-old cross, um, if this is the warning for someone who took it away from the monastery, I don't imagine that things are going to be too great if you continue to hold on to it. So if you got that cross, you should send it back. Anyways, moving on. Continuing this theme of her being the patron of the arts, of the religious arts, um, at one point she asked, permission from the patriarch Luke of Constantinople to send the Ephesus icon of the Mother of God so that it could be venerated in her church of the Most Holy Theotokos. It is said that the icon was made from the hand of the Apostle St. Mark. Emperor Manuel sent this icon in 1173, and from there it is moved. So eventually, Euphrosina, she being holy, sensed the end of her life coming, and she desired to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. She prayed, If only I could, O Lord, come to the holy city of Jerusalem to adore your sepulcher and all the holy places, to kiss them and to end my life there. For if I have seen a great many sheep of the Lord gathered into one fold, and if I have rejoiced in the salvation, in their salvation, as it were my own. She was accompanied by her sister Eudoxica and her nephew David. After traveling from the north through Constantinople and into the east, Euphrosina sent a servant ahead of her to ask a special request from the patriarch. The easternmost gate of the city, the Golden Gate, is the entrance that Christ passed through on Palm Sunday. It had been uh, tightly shut and locked since the Muslims had taken over the city in the 9th century. It was Euphrosini's request that it should be opened for her as she entered into the city, that she may walk in the same footsteps of the Lord. Now, this is very good historical timing. Her hagiographer probably didn't know that since the Crusaders had reconquered Jerusalem for the West, that door had been already been reopened. And so when she comes upon, you know, the, the open entrance, it's, it's a great blessing to her. And it really was a great blessing to everyone around to be able to do the same thing. And it, you know, wasn't done necessarily especially for her, but she certainly viewed it as such and appreciated that the Patriarch of Jerusalem uh, followed suit with her request. Uh, even though you know, it's kind of it's it's kind of a funny situation when you when you look at it, but she took it as this great act of um, for her to be reverent uh, to her lord. And we're going to quote actually her um, her experience with entering into the city of Jerusalem. So her vita describes it as such. And she came to the gate, fell to the ground, and said. O Lord Jesus Christ, do not hold it against me that I have dared to walk in your footsteps. Then she entered into the holy city and proceeded to the tomb of the Lord. When she arrived there, she made a prostration and kissed the tomb of Christ, then incensed the tomb of the Lord with the golden censer and many kinds of incense and departed. She stopped at the Ruthenian monastery of the Holy Mother of God. 
On the next day, she went again to the tomb of our Lord, as on the previous day she adored and kissed it, then incensed it and went away. On the third day, she did the same and left rich gifts of gold and placed the golden censer with all kinds of incense on the tomb. Then standing by the tomb of the Lord, she lifted up her arms to heaven, sighed from the depth of her heart and said, O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, who was born of the ever-Virgin Mary for our salvation, you said, Ask, and it will be given to you. I, a sinner, have received from you everything I have asked for. Now I ask you again, my Lord and Master, to grant me this last favor. Receive my spirit here in your holy city of Jerusalem, and transfer me to the heavenly Jerusalem, granting me peace together with the patriarch Abraham and all those who have found favor with you. Amen. Shortly after, she fell ill and knew that she needed to make arrangements for her burial. At first, she made a request to be buried at the Venerable Monastery of St. Sabas. However, the monastery, being exclusively monks, claimed it would be not appropriate, and they directed her to the Monastery of St. Theodosius that was close by. It's interesting this detail is highlighted in her story. Even after her death, for hundreds of years, her burial place would be kind of these temporary spots. However, this is how her story concludes, and it's from her vita. After that, she remained alone for 24 days, and when she felt that her end was near, she said, Call the priest that he may give me holy communion. I have heard the call, and my end is near. I am expecting orders from the Lord. The priest came with the blessed sacrament, and she got up, made three prostrations, received the most pure body of Christ, and then laid down again. Thus she gave her soul into the hands of the living God on the 24th day of May, and departed to the heavenly peace. St. Euphrosyne died in 1167. However, 20 years later in 1187, Saladin conquered the city. Euphrosyne's body was then taken to Kiev, where she was laid to rest in the cave's monastery. Her body was moved again in 1910, back to where she left 742 years previously, back to Polotsk. I find this to be really interesting because her wish, her one wish from God, was to die in the Holy Land. Not necessarily be buried there. I think it might have been the wish of her countrymen in Polosk to have her buried with them, with their ancestors. This concludes the end of our look on her life specifically. Now Sarah and I are going to have a conversation on the different things, the different reflections we had from having done so, having looked at her life. Oh, hey. Hey. <laughs> so, you had thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I and I want to hear what your thoughts are on Cindy's <laughs> life. Um, well, I really like her for, like, a lot of reasons, which I think is probably apparent after people just, like, kind of listening to her life story there. But I think she's a couple of things. I think, one, she's sort of an antidote saint to the Instagram age, and I'll explain why. Okay. Just help help me make sure that I hit these points. 
because I kind of lose the plot sometimes. That's okay. And um, obviously I love her as a patron of religious art. Patron of the arts, Instagram. Oh yeah, she's an example of um, holy, like, womanhood. Yeah. In a way that's a bit of also an antithesis to some things that we see or believe right now. So I don't know. What do you want to go into that, first there? I don't there's know. A, there's a, we can go down a couple different rivers. And they're all kind of related, so I feel like they're all just going to like submerge or um, converge is what I meant. Um, okay, well, first of all, I think she has a complete disdain for this sort of luxury that she grew up in. Mm. And... Um, for fame, like you, I think you quoted, yeah, like the thing she has to say about. Well, well what fame. good is all of this stuff? Our <laughs> ancestors had it; and they like, didn't achieve heaven through it. Yeah, and like you're gonna die, and then that's it. Yeah. If that's what you go for in life, yeah. and so I think that that's really interesting. And not to be, I don't want to be one of those people that just like rags on social media all the time because I don't necessarily think that's the only stance that you can take, but. <clears throat> I think there's also this like weird um, productivity culture we have right now, and it even leaks into our church ministries or like the things we're trying to do online to evangelize that are really good and beautiful and wonderful. And I'm not calling anybody specific out here because we have a podcast, but there's like, I kind of get some anxiety sometimes when I listen to or look at people who are like, oh, goals, goals, you got to set goals. You got to sit down at New Year's and like write out what are the things you want to accomplish this year. Right. And all this stuff. And what I see with Euphrosini or Euphrosina is like, she is kind of just following her nose. And we were talking about this the other day in a different context, but her first thing is just like, I can see and realize that marriage is not going to be the vocation yeah. that fit that fits for me. Mm-hmm. And so where do I take that? And so then the first step is just like this radical choice. Right. But like a lot of her choices, I don't think are that radical in the moment and they produce this insane fruit. And I think that's something we see in the life of the saints. Uh, and the person... The two more recent examples that come to mind are like Mother Angelica and Mother Teresa. And I think okay. both of these women are weird, weird, like strong-willed women like Euphrosina. Okay. Who, you, who have these like crazy dynasties for God by the time they left the earth. But I get sure, the impression yeah. that they're both very humble and just kind of did like, oh, I'm going to... You know, like the first step... I don't know Mother Teresa's history any more specifically. I can't call, recall, but just kind of doing the thing that's in front of you, you know? And then she has that dream to go to the, to the certain church and like take a residence there. And the Bishop has the same dream. And then they kind of have this meeting of minds. Right. I, I, I'm not sure if you cover that. I didn't cover that in this. Yeah. When she first goes to the first church where she, she's living in the basement and re transcribing these books yeah. and she has a visitation from an angel. And what that visitation tells her is that there's somewhere different. She needs to be yeah. and go and ask if she can stay there. Mm-hmm. And the Bishop of that place also has the dream. Yeah. And 
there's this moment where like she's already a nun her her parents aren't super happy but it's like what's done is done and mm. they're trying to be faithful people right but there's this great moment where this bishop puts her father and uncles under his obedience yeah to allow her to do this yeah saying this is god's will yeah um and then also like nobody i need your like solemn vow that you're not gonna like retract this arrangement as soon as I die. Because <laughs> mm. he must have been old, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so we see her as this like formidable, strong-willed person, but it's paired with this really humble, like following her nose in prayer, in the revelations that she was blessed to receive in a more <laughs> definite, like dream-like way, mm-hmm. as opposed to being like, I want to someday build like the greatest example of Belarusian architecture and have a relic of the true cross that, you know, everyone writes about for 800 years, how beautiful it is and how we're sad. It got lost after world war two, you know, like she didn't start out. She started out being like, I don't want to be a princess because it's not holy Mm. on some level to her. Right. In and of itself. Yeah. Like there, don't get me wrong. We have like, you know, Holy princesses. Isabella of Spain or whoever you might. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I do kind of want to point out just the humility and, and the greatness that, that these saints achieve. We look at their lives in retrospect and we don't think about how like she didn't get there because she sat down and wrote all of these insane goals on new year's. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) She was just humbly like a handmaiden of the Lord. Yeah. And even when she, when she dies, she says that telling thing, which I think was her MO all along. She says, go and fetch the priest to bring me communion Mm. for, I think my time's come and I'm just awaiting instructions from the Lord. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that is like the nut of her posture. Just waiting. Throughout her life. Uh, like, I'm going to sit here and recopy these books, which, like, apparently ladies weren't allowed to do at all at the time. Yeah. So she must have had some impetus to do that in the first place, right? Right. And she's not like, I'm going to do this thing that, like, women are not allowed to do, like, out of... Anyway, so that that's something I'll get to, but her... Uh, woman power, or whatever you might want to call it. I'm hesitant to call it feminism for a few reasons, but, um, so I think there's that humility of just following her nose. And when you look back at the lives of, of all of these saints who have accomplished great things, like building the most beautiful churches out there or getting the, uh, icon that's legendarily written by the hand of St. Luke, by the way, not St. Mark, Right. (laughs) just correction. He said St. Mark. But it was St. Luke. What good would you have been had you not corrected me? <laughs> well, I didn't want to be a jerk, but St. Luke's the iconographer. Yes. Um, and, you know, like, there's three of those at this time in history that are, like, purported to have been written by St. Luke. How she convinced yeah. the people who were in the guardianship of that in Ephesus to, like, let go of it. Yeah is insane. Well, how she convinced the patriarch and yeah. the emperor. Yes. to convince the people in Ephesus. Yes. 
And, you know, we see the same thing, like, um, with a couple different moments in her life, like just the sheer audacity to just ask, but there's this weird humility in asking, like, you're not too proud to just ask something that could very likely be like, they just laugh you out of there. Mm. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. asking to be buried in that one place. And they're like, well, it wouldn't really be appropriate because you're a lady. Yeah. But then she gets married. She gets buried in the Kievian caves. Eventually. Yes. Eventually. Which is an insane honor. Yes. So. And it's kind of funny because to my knowledge, she would, she would have been the first woman. Yeah, I was going to say, I wanted to say that, but I'm like, I don't know that, but I'm pretty sure. Or like, she'd be among. The the reason why the monks of St. Sabbath didn't allow her. Yes. Yes. So, um, so there, there's, that's where you see like this kind of weird twofold side, I think, to humility, where it's like this extreme disregard for self. And I think someone like her or like Mother Teresa even or Mother Angelica or whoever might come off if you don't pay attention as actually not humble. Mm. Cause there's this intense confidence that comes from knowing that you're just the instrument. (laughs) It's not a self-confidence. The guy running the marionette can get what he wants anyway. So you don't really have to be insecure about asking something crazy. Like, can I have St. Luke's icon, please? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? So I think it's that side. It's like, um, they say humility is like knowing who you are in light of who God is. So that's like both knowing our worthlessness or our littleness, our weakness yeah, and inhabiting that fully, but also knowing what our talents are, what we can accomplish if we throw ourselves at his mercy and service. Right. So that's the one big thing. St. John in his, I believe it's in in his first epistle, Mm -hmm. he he tells uh, whoever he's writing to, I don't quite recall, to have confidence in God. Yeah. Have confidence that God will save you. Yeah. And so I think that's what it is, is that just this abounding trust. Yeah. In, and then he Christ. can use you no matter how much you're awkward or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's whether you're just doing a dumb copyist <clears throat> job. Yeah. Or if you're starting a monastery, it's yeah. the same thing. It's the same function. Yeah. Of just complete and total reliance on, on his, um, on divine providence yeah and it can actually make you look arrogant sometimes but you are humble enough that you don't give a crap about that either right like can i be buried here and they're like nah (laughs) all right (laughs) cool no hard feelings (laughs) you know what i mean yeah so i think about that a little bit or i mean all of that um i think the other thing about that is um i think here we see um when she starts out that's still there that desire for obedience is what kind of births her vocation idea her her murmuring of her first murmuring of the realization that she has a vocation she says something to the effect of how great her life would be if she could just be a nun and be placed under the obedience of an abbess and other sisters to grow in prayer and asceticism and to be denied to her, like, deny herself. Mm. And that that was her desire when she just kind of took a minute to get quiet at 12 years old. You know, and I think that's that's so beautiful. And that's something 
worth meditating on for people who are still kind of trying to figure out what their vocation is. Mm. There's that moment where, where her desire was for obedience Mm. to learn how to exercise that better. And she totally did as we see. Mm -hmm. And it took her on an adventure two or three or four. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that could be just as easily as we're learning, like, the emptying of self of being called to pour just pour yourself out in a marriage in that moment where you feel like you're past all of your reason like all of your reserves have been used up yeah of patience and yeah you know so it doesn't have to only apply to religious life or, or being a monk as they call her you for seeing the monk um but it, it to think about how is it that you want to pour yourself out? What is it that is like this real deep renovation that you crave? Mm. What, what character does it have? And for her, it was obedience. Mm. And I think that that's really beautiful. Um, and in, <laughs> in that sense, um, she's also an antidote, I think, to this kind of modern modern feminism we have, which like has this sort of jealousness to it. Like it would be more like I'm going to transcribe books because men aren't allowed to, and I'll show them mm. as opposed to this is what my gifts are. Yeah. I don't really know what to do with that except park myself in the basement of a church fast transcribe the books, sell them and give the money away to the poor. Cause that works for now. Yeah. And that's what I, that's the step that's been put in front of my nose in my prayer right now. And I see for her that humility comes into play in, we might be tempted to look at her and be like, she was so cool. Like she started a monastery and a men's monastery, even though she's a woman, like she just didn't give a crap, which she didn't. She gave a crap about what God thought. And that's it. Yeah. But there was no, like, resentment or settling of the score in these choices. Well, it wasn't any kind of political motivation, right? Yeah. Or she wasn't, like, up upending, you know, the social order. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was, as you were saying, out of obedience to, to her, to how God was calling her. Mm-hmm. And I think obedience is a concept that's foreign to much of modern feminism. And there are maybe some not horrible reasons for that. Cause obedience can be someone's desire to be obedient can be abused, but more often than not, we just don't like it cause it grates and it's actually hard <laughs> for it. Even when it's like the right yeah. context. Um, I also just had this wonderful image in the end where she's in Jerusalem and she's going to the Holy Sepulchre and she's taking incense and she's purchased specifically these beautiful incenses and things, mm. an incenser to take to sort of lavish our Lord. And I had these images of these other women in scripture, like the woman who washed Jesus's feet with her hair. And had spent, you know, something on that ointment. And the myrrh-bearing women who came 
ready to anoint Jesus's body. And what they both found was like profound new life Mm. in those moments. And Mm -hmm. this is like her last sort of semi-public act of her life in a way, you know, and those prostrations immediately before her death in the moments before. And I was just so touched and feel like she would, she would be so maybe not thinking about herself that way, but it it was as if she's one of the murdering women going to the tomb of Christ Mm. with the beautiful incense. And she does it for three days. Yeah. And that's obviously numerically it's significant. Yeah. And three prostrations right before she goes. Mm -hmm. So. Did you go over all of your. Yeah, that's the majority of it. And then there's just the thing where she says like, Lord, you have never not given me something You've never not given me something that I asked for. So now please let me, please let me come see you in heaven. Kind yeah. of. And Grant this wish. And just realizing that the nature of those asks is different than sometimes what we ask. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, oh yeah. So, so the other thing that I had, okay, so the, it's all blending together now, <laughs> but there's also this um, looking at someone like Saint Euphrosina, who was literally a princess and desired nothing more than to have a little corner of some church basement to transcribe things in mm-hmm. and pray and fast at first. And looking at someone, other saints like Saint Francis of Assisi or Saint Catherine of Siena, people born of noble birth who like immediately ditched it by like the age of twelve or fourteen or mm-hmm. eighteen or whatever. They spat out the golden spoon. Yeah. Or the silver spoon rather. Yeah. And I just think a little bit about how sometimes, especially when when we look at like women's ministry, and I'm not gonna call out anyone specific, because it's not anyone specific, it's a general thing. We kind of look at like wanting everything to be just really pretty and that's a natural desire women have to like beautify our homes for our families and that's good. There's, it's not bad in itself, but it's like we want to be, there's a lot of this dialogue around like, oh, you're you're a little princess in God's eyes, like you're God's precious little girl or precious little princess or, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think there's a place for that um, depending where you're at in your journey and you need to hear how much God loves you at a certain point and we need to be reminded of that at different levels but this desire to like be a princess or be treated by a princess whether by Jesus or by a hopefully future husband just strikes me as not quite hitting the mark. It's a little infantilizing, it sounds. Like, yes. self-infantilizing. Yes. Yeah. And it's... We need a soft place to land, and maybe that's where that comes from sometimes. Especially in our faith life, we need... We all struggle with really understanding that God loves us and the depth of that and the intensity of that. And I think right. we aren't comfortable with that. And and so but I, I want to be careful because I, yeah. don't, I don't want to buck that because I know that's a thing I struggle with, even myself. And... But but being God's little princess, I I don't see how that encourages me to to grow and become an adult in my faith life. It lacks like yeah, God does love us, but it's a love that we want to sacrifice ourselves for. Yes, you know if if I'm gonna put words in your mouth, 
A little princess does not sacrifice herself for for her father, for the father of the king. Yeah, and it's kind of putting yourself in that role where it's like this isn't all what it's about. Be. Yeah, and this this kind of mentality, this self-infantilizing kind of thing, it's it's not it. You, what I think you're saying is that it stifles maturity. Yes, and there's something so profoundly adult about you for Cena's faith life from 12 years old. Mm. And that, that's one of the shocking and things mature. about her. Yeah, mature yeah. and, and saint, saintly. Yes. And there's something in my experience about after you kind of get into your faith life on a little bit of a deeper level. Not that I'm like any kind of guru whatsoever. I'm certainly not claiming that. But you go through that that phase where you need to be... I think Jesus gives us that wooing that we need at first. Like we get the baby mm. food is how people talk about it sometimes. Mm -hmm. But then there comes a point where the real work of like really rolling up our sleeves and working with God to sort of grow in the spiritual life. It doesn't come from being treated like a princess in that sense. Like I'm always treated by God with love and respect. And, but if anything, it's like an invitation to grow up most of the time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? An invitation to put my big girl pants on. Mm. And <laughs> and so this thing I call Galtholicism, which is like yeah. everything has to be visually very pretty. And again, these things in themselves aren't always bad. And for it's it's a good thing to want to make your home or your whatever beautiful for your family or your life in some way. But we need to look at what real lasting beauty is. And I think that's what Euphrosini shows us. It's not a horrible thing to make a beautiful jeweled cross yeah. for Jesus. But we got a question wanting to wear the beautiful jewels. <laughs> you know, as all, her and all these women that followed her show yeah. us. And um, it doesn't mean never buy yourself a nice dress. It just means... I don't know. I think we have something more adult that we can strive for as women. Yeah. And it's a temptation for us in the first place to sort of fall back on that. Well, we're just emotional. Like we're just built differently. Yeah. Well, I'll... And that's true, but it's not... A, it shouldn't be a crutch to holy, I holiness. Would, we've talked about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about it. And if you just took the variables out and take women out and put men in, you know, <laughs> and if... Like, I think a lot of men's ministry is about, you know, being a strong soldier for God <laughs> and all this stuff, which is fine. Yeah. Which is fine. And I mean... But don't stay there. But the thing is, you need to... Like, for men, that image of a soldier is mm -hmm. good. But you have to know that it's to crucify yourself. Mm -hmm. It's to afflict yourself. It's an, to afflict your passions. And it's interesting because... In both cases, what's lacking is the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's a failure to observe the kind of... If it's a ministry, it's not ministering against our sinfulness. It's ministering against our lack of self-confidence. Mm -hmm. Or something, you know, like some 
modern kind of notion of psychology. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, in both cases, when you look at, you know, pop, pop Catholicism, women's ministry, or pop Catholicism, men's ministry, it's all about making yourself feel better. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this kind of self-medicating t- type thing mm-hmm. where really what we need to seek out is, is penance, is repentance, mm-hmm. uh, the, the service of servanthood. Um, and, and I think that when we lack that articulation in these ministries, they just become kind of this, uh, this support for our poor egos. Mm-hmm. Does that yep. make sense? Yep. And I was even thinking, and I was look. I've been looking through the troparias that we pray when we we use a particular book for our hours for our divine office, and you know they don't have a specific troparia for each saint. But when you you know have a particular saint that you're praying to, and you want to use a troparia, there's like there's the if you want to use it for a selfless physician, yeah, you use a particular one for a hero martyr, a priest martyr. Yeah. You use one. And for a woman martyr, yeah. you use another one. And it's like we all service, like in, in either gender, we, we both use the same tools, mm-hmm. but we create a different outcome. Mm-hmm. And holiness is... Holiness becomes this... Uh, there's a specific way that men become holy... Or specific ways that men become holy and different kind of types that we show. Mm-hmm. And there's different types that women show. Mm-hmm. You know, that is indigenous to the sexes. And that's true of our temptations as well. And I think yeah, that's, that's what I'm getting that's... at with the whole, like, careful ah, yeah, about the yeah. princess thing. Careful about anything that allows you to stay in this sort of, like, not having to own stuff and be an adult sort of place. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because what can happen? You know, suddenly you're faced, you have a baby. Yeah. And you're faced with, you know, needing to be... Or a real... A servant or... Intense mother-in-law. Praise Lord, I don't have yeah, a you difficult don't. one of those, but... Yeah, not you know, or, or a, a boss or, you know, a, a pastor even that has a has a desire to challenge you as an adult and then that person looks like a villain to you is what ends up happening is that you're so enslaved by your own need to be like kind of coddled and this is like true of men as much of women but i just Mm. have been noticing it more and it's c for cini so but it's like what ends up happening is that person appears to you as this incredible villain when actually often that person is really putting in the effort to like treat you like an adult and care about you enough to tell you things that they know you're not going to receive well or like them for, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's where holiness is. And there's maybe not a direct example. Now we're going away from you for specifically right now, but um, we do see that in friendships among the saints or, Um, critical (laughs) people who both ended up being saints and were critical of each other and I can't think of the two guys right now but anyways we'll move past that anyway so that's that that's that's our reflections yeah (laughs) okay sounds good Mm -hmm.
All right. I'm glad you shared what you had to share. <laughs> okay, good. Awesome. So, guys, thanks very much for listening. This has been your dose of Agios. Saint, Saint to you for city of Polosk. Pray for us. Pray for us.